Hello, hello, and welcome to the mental matchup. This is a really exciting episode for me for two reasons. One, we are joined by an incredible guest, but two, this is our 100th episode of the mental matchup, which is crazy to think about in two and a half years with you know the podcast being live that we've been able to get so many incredible guests on the podcast talking about their own experiences, their own stories, and really sharing and trusting us with their stories has been such an honor. And so just, you know, before we even dive into to our today's guest, I just wanted to do a little thank you for everyone who's come on the mental matchup, anyone who's supported it and in getting us to our hundredth episode. It's it's pretty incredible and it's something that, you know, I feel I feel very proud of and more importantly very proud to be a part of Morgan's message. With that, our guest today is Dennis Gillen. Dennis is the executive director of the Half Asaro Foundation, which is a foundation that strives to improve the mental health of individuals and organizations through conversation. He also has an incredible TEDx talk on loneliness, which is linked in our show notes, and is the author of the book, Nice Shoes, A Little Compliment Can Go a Long Way. During the episode, Dennis talks about losing two of his brothers to suicide and how that impacted his own mental health and ultimately changed the trajectory of his life today. He truly embodies the belief that an open dialogue with others will help break the stigma surrounding talking about your own mental health. And we are so honored to have him as our guest for such a milestone episode. With that, let's get right to Dennis. Dennis, thank you so much for coming on The Mental Matchup. I am extremely excited to have you on and ch- chat about I, so many different topics. Um, to kick us off, though, can you give the audience a little bit of background as to who you are, where you are, and what you do? Sure. My name is Dennis Gillen. I'm a Libra who loves to travel. Okay, wrong site. Sorry, wrong wrong podcast. Uh, you can see, I, I don't want to talk about my story because it's, it's such a tough one at times. Uh, I, I deflect a little bit, you know, I'm trying to you know, use humor as deflection, but we got to get into it. I'm one of five kids. I grew up in, you know, Nyack, New York, a little town right outside of New York. I went to Nyack High School. The town is called Valley Cottage, New York, in the Hudson Valley. Um, and I was right in the middle. And unfortunately, I lost not one, but two brothers to suicide. And I'm still in the middle. I lost my older brother and my younger brother. And my voice started cracking right there. You could hear it because it's a tough thing to say. And 10 years ago, I couldn't say that sentence without just losing it. I, I couldn't say that sentence at all uh, without just crying. Uh, and it, it, was, it was a tough one. But time has an amazing way of healing. And like we're all on the same mission together, all all of us here today, Skylar, Catherine, our, 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 our miseries become our mission. We We don't want other people to go through what we went through with our losses. And we want to go upstream and talk about mental health. 
So I had this really great childhood. I uh, played sports, ran around, suburban, everything was great. And then it, everything changed um, on October 26, 1983. And I was 20 years old at the time when I lost my older brother. In college, I was in college at the time. I was a junior at West Virginia University. Um, and when I got that news and been on this little mission ever since, and 11 years later, just when I thought I was healing from that, 11 years later, I got the call from my sister. Same sister called twice. So even to this day, when she calls me, my heart skips a beat. And um, we lost Matthew 11 years later. I wouldn't wish one on the devil himself. And our family had to go through it twice. So this is why we're doing this stuff we're doing today. Because we want to talk about mental health. And we want to talk ourselves out of the suicide prevention business. Because nobody's doing it. Um, a guy can dream, right? Yeah. I I want, I want to, before we get into that, because it's, it's going to be, I think, really great to, you know, hear your perspective and what you went through. But I, I want to talk a little bit and kind of like preface with what was mental health like growing up? Like, what were the conversations around it? Was it discussed in the home, in your community? Did you have any firsthand, secondhand experience with mental health leading up to, you know, kind of that call you got junior year. This is really cool because we're, this is like intergenerational here. I can, I can speak, you know, I'm about to cross over uh, this year. I'm going to turn 60. I know I look 58. Stop it. No, um, <laughs> it's going to happen. Time marches on. Father time is undefeated, right? So think about where I grew up. Born in 63, uh, I lose Mark at 83, so I'm 20. We didn't talk about it at all. It was taboo. Uh -uh. Even after he died, I remember I came home and, and my poor parents, no one knew what to do. And I had a really bad semester grade-wise. And my dad looks at me and goes, what, you know, look at your report card. What's going on? And I had to remind him. I said, Dad, do you, do you remember what happened this semester? Like, like we're supposed to be normal. Like, and that was about the extent of the conversation. And please remind me to come back to my dad later because, you know, he's a classic Irish Catholic, you know, we're not going to talk about this thing. And it happened. And we still didn't talk about it. And I will take this to my grave. I think our reluctance to talk about it, especially after Mark died, Mark was my older brother. Our reluctance to talk about it may have cost us Matthew. Because there's a saying out there, postvention is prevention. We had an event, a loss of Mark. And Mark battled depression for years. We, we lost him. And we didn't really acknowledge it fully and embrace it. And, you know, I'm going to embrace it. It just let the grief do its work. We didn't talk about it. And I think that cost us Matthew. Why, why do you think that there weren't conversations about it? Well, especially back then, going back in my time capsule, it was... It was such a taboo topic, even mental health, you know, now if COVID did one thing and time, you know, has helped us, it's, it's top of conversation. Now we're, we're all worried about each other and we're all checking in on each other. Hey, how's your mental health? We've come a long way. There was a time even before, well, my brother Mark died, when someone got cancer, you didn't talk about it. You'd say like, oh, you got cancer and you'd say it real low. We don't say that anymore. We don't talk like that anymore. 
There, and that was the time also when suicide. We didn't talk about it. How did he die? Don't worry. My brother's obituary, both of them, really didn't even mention it. And I've seen some beautiful obituaries written since then. You know, we lost my sister after a long battle with depression. They come right at it. And that this is what happened. And I wish I wish we had that you know knowledge back then. We just the number one killer of probably all of us in the suicide industry is pride. Pride. We don't want we're really good at giving help. Like if, if someone had, you know, if my wife called me up and said I have a flat tire, I would zoom over there in a heartbeat. But we're really bad at asking for help, every one of us, you know, and I and hopefully that barrier is getting smaller and smaller. So listen, I'm not doing so hot. That's okay to say it now. It just, it should have been okay since the dawn of time, you know? So one thing that I would love to make sure we clarify the audience, because I don't think we said it explicitly yet. I would love to, for you to talk about your role in your organization. And then also, I'm so curious, might be jumping the gun here, but I would love to hear about like, from your perspective, obviously, we've talked about how much mental health stigma has changed from your childhood to now, um, but you're still in this space. You're still doing this work. What are some things that you're really hoping to change going forward, too? Yeah, there's a couple things there. First question was, what was my role? I'm the executive director of a foundation. It's called the Half a Sorrow Foundation. It's a mouthful, but it comes from this really cool proverb that a shared joy is a double joy. A shared sorrow is half a sorrow. And if we start sharing our sorrows, we cut them in half. Now, all you math majors out there, a half of a half of a half, we're always going to have a remainder. And that's okay. I'm always going to remember my brothers. I'll always have that sorrow, but I'm trying to make it smaller. I'm, it's not going to go away. It's not. Um, yeah, I miss them. It's always going to be with you. I'll take it to the grave. But if, if we talk about stuff, and we've all been there, we, we, we address a problem, we come out and say it, there's like this sense of relief, and all of a sudden the sorrow is not as big as we thought it was. And often when you say something like you're vulnerable and you admit a weakness, sometimes it's met with you too. You know, you say something like, uh, you know, I lost a brother to suicide. I literally was walking on my street here in Greenville, South Carolina, and I met a stranger. This woman came to my house. She's a neighbor. So now we're talking. And she says, what do you do? I said, well, I'm walking on my way to work. I work this foundation. We do suicide prevention. She goes, I lost my brother to suicide. Two people randomly on the street in Greenville, South Carolina. Little did she know that. I said, well, give me a hug because we're in this together. It's so powerful. Yeah. I. So for the foundation... I also love that proverb. That's amazing. That's going to stick with me for sure. Thank you for that. Um, what are some kind of key efforts that you all have going on right now? What is your vision for the future for changing mental health, ideally? Ideally, and I think we're all involved in this, and you asked some of the earlier, but, you know, what, what do I like to change? Uh, there are not enough mental health professionals in the world. Try get an appointment. <laughs> Try it. I got a, a message today from a friend of mine on Facebook Messenger. He's in the struggle. He's on the struggle bus right now. And he's we're talking and he goes, hey, I went to the hospital. He's got another medical condition. They said, hey, uh, you should see the psychiatrist. He goes, hey, that'd be great. He got an appointment. <laughs> Today is June 41st. His appointment's for mid-August. Come on. Like, come on. 
So one of the things I'm glad he reached out to me. One of the things I love to see change, and this is why we're talking about this is more the peer to peer networking because there's more of us, there's more peers than there are mental health professionals. And if we could figure out a way to do more networking that way. And one of the things we have at the half a Sara foundation for, and ladies, we have to figure out something for the ladies, but I have a guy program called the camo hat club. And every, every month, a bunch of us get together. I went through a divorce and uh, I lived in an apartment and a bunch of guys got together from that apartment. And it's been going on for probably six years. Now we meet once a month for breakfast. And at the end of the breakfast, because it's my group, I say, Hey, how's everybody's mental health. And recently we had a guy show up. It was interesting from the building. Someone invited him and he didn't look so hot. Looked like he's having a rough day. And he sat down and we said, Hey, Nick, what's going on? He goes, well, I'm going through a divorce. And like, little did he know he sat down at a table. Four of us already had one. We're like, Hey brother, come to Papa. You know, what, are you any questions? You know, we've been there. So that's that peer to peer piece. That's what I love to see change. And people like that were before, before maybe Nick would have said, ah, nothing. I'm fine. But he came out and said it, and then all right, he shared it, and now we can address it. And there's people at the table that have been through that. So that's what I like to see change. So the Camo Hat Club is, you know, I stole it from the ladies, by the way. You know that that you ever see those old ladies in a restaurant, the Red Hat Society, the Red Hat Ladies? It's a club. My mom was in it. But they get together just to have fun. I'm like, we need something like that on the guy side. Plus, guys camouflage their emotions. So we got to come up with something for the younger ladies, like the trucker hat club. I think there's something cool about a, a girl wearing a trucker hat, something like that, where you get together. But it's it's not a, the whole focal point isn't mental health. It's, it's breaking bread and, and connecting. But at the end, you got to bring it around and say, "How's everybody's mental health?" That's great. Um, I I want to skip back. I think a few chapters and talk a little bit about. I don't know where your dad maybe comes into this, but I want to talk about losing your brothers um, and what that period was like for you. Because to me, this is something that has been so profound and so impactful on your life and has turned into a passion, project, job, career, whatever you want to call it, where like you're you're truly making a difference in honoring, you know, the losses that you've had. Can you talk a little bit about what you mentally, emotionally, physically went through during this period of time? And I mean, I I think grief is like never kind of like what you said with, for the math people, right? Like it's never going to fully go away. I mean, you even mentioned like my voice still will even crack talking about it. And it took a really long time before I could talk about it. Um, I'd love for you to kind of talk about the impact that loss had on you. And then maybe even like what kind of turned, turned it around and opened that up and turned that shadow and like let the light in for you to step into, you know, the place that you're at now. Oh, great question. Way to tee it up. Because of this two, the two deaths by suicide. Um, the first one, again, 20 years old, think I'm bulletproof. You know, I'm at that age where everything's, you know, I, I could do no wrong. And the world is all about me. I went on a bender. Uh, the drinking age was 18 at the time. I'm 20. And when Mark died, I went 
nuts after that. Just drank, 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 um, masking you know some real emotions with substances, which is you know it happens. Substance use disorder. It's a big tent when you're looking at uh, what we're doing here with the mental health work. Um, but I went on on pretty hard bender. I, I don't know how I got out of school. I think my blood alcohol was about as high as my grade point average or as low. <laughs> they were meeting in the middle. One was going up, one was going down. Um, but I got out of there in four years and eight weeks. I took a summer session. And then uh, I, uh, I continued to drink heavily. And you know, even with Matthew, I was with my younger brother at times and we would get drunk and we wouldn't talk about Mark. So that 11 years was kind of cloudy for me after Mark died. Uh, and then fast forward to 83 to 94 when Matthew dies. I, you know, I will tell myself, I went to the funeral and got hammered the night before. Um, hammered. Went to the funeral, hung over. And that's the last time I got drunk in my life. And that's 28 years ago. Um, I just, that was one of the turning points for me. I was driving back. I lived in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. I was driving back from New York. And it was like those proverbial fork in the road. Like, Dennis, what are you going to do with your life? I just buried two brothers, second brother to suicide. And I'm in the car. I got uh, my first wife's there. Um, we're trying to have a kid. Things aren't working out. I'm like, you know, what are you going to do? So I decided to take a time out. And then I made a deal. I don't tell this story too often. I made a deal with God. And now we're in a wrestling match, God. Now we're not, you know, my prayers weren't very good. They were like, God, bleep, 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 bleep. You know, it was one of those, you know, it wasn't a very nice spiritual prayer. It was like, I don't care what you want. I remember saying that. This is what I want. I said, I want a baby. And um, it was a deal. I said, if we get pregnant, I'll never drink again. Sober 28 years, my son's 29, do the math. You know, it all works out, right? It happened. So that was a good thing. So that's always a great, you know, a great thing when I go on college campuses. Hey, kids, don't drink. They're like, beat it, grandpa. <laughs> I get it. I'm just an example. I say, just when you're going through something, this is what I always say. When you're going through something like I was, try going through it sober. You know, just try it. It's it, 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 just asking to take a time. I thought I was going to take a time out. The timeouts lasted. I like sobriety. All right. Um, so that was the key point, the sobriety piece. And then when Matthew died, I, I brought in the professionals. That's when I had, a, I was at work and I had an employee assistance program. And I noticed they had counseling on there. And this is a big step for a guy. And I'm like, you know, I'm going to use that. So I called them up and I made an appointment and I went and saw a counselor. I don't know where I'd be without God, sobriety, and the counselor. That's like a three-legged stool. One of them goes, I fall over. You know, that's how it works. That was a big turning point. And so for your listeners out there, especially the dudes, and I'm on a dude role here because 80% of all suicides are guys. That's why Morgan was an anomaly. There's three to four times more attempts by the women. Um, and we got to stop that too. Um, the guys are, are the finishers and, um, you know, one is too many, just one's too many. It doesn't matter if you get, you know, I can do stats all day long, but if you suffer from a loss of one person, all the stats go out the window, you lost that one person that meant a lot to you. So, um, those are a couple of the pillars I stand on now. And it's, it's the reason I can do this talk. Now you say, wow, you, you sobered up, you're in counseling, blah, blah, blah. Now you become a speaker. Oh, no. 16 years, I didn't talk about my brothers. And then somebody asked me to speak at a fundraiser. And I went up there for five minutes and I bombed. 
you know, I could barely get it out. And um, the fuse was lit. So it was, it's, it was interesting. I'm always, I always marvel at people that suffer a tragedy and they immediately get to work. I, I, I admire them. They roll up their sleeves and go, all right, this ain't going to happen again. I wasn't one of those guys. I was like, I was raising a family. I was trying to forget about it. I moved to Chicago. And when I lived in Chicago, I would tell people, they'd say, hey, how many people in your family? You all know the answer is five. Sheila, Mark, me in the middle, Janice and Matthew. I would tell them three. I have two sisters back in New York. Then never brought up the boys. Didn't want to talk about it. And I, 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 I sat down with a pastor one time about this. And I said, you know what? I wasted all that time. I could have been out there doing stuff. I could have been you know, trying to help people. And he said, that was your time in the desert. And he was quoting the Old Testament and the Exodus. You know, when they, they all left, the Israelites left Egypt and they were wandering around. They weren't ready. He goes, you're just wandering around in the desert. You weren't ready. And he was right, because the first couple of times I tried to speak about it, they were horrible. I cried. One time I went to USC in uh, University of South Carolina, and they introduced me. And I never heard myself externally introduced. Here's a guy that lost two brothers to suicide. And I'm sitting there going, oh, my God, that poor guy. And then they go, ladies and gentlemen, Dennis Gillum. And I went, oh, crap, it's me. Because you don't hear it. You know, you hear it in your head, but you don't hear it outside. And then I cried the entire hour. Thank God it was a bunch of psychology interns who were very receptive. It was a small group. I think I owe them a bill. It was like a therapy session. I cried for an hour. And then the next time I spoke, it was at another. Someone said, hey, we heard you did a good job at USC. I'm like, who is writing my reviews? I did horrible. And I went down. I only cried half the time. And the third time, I, I I think I hit my stride at this one school and it, it it took off. So that's how I got into this. But I tell that story to tell your the people that are listening. And people say, if you haven't told your story, I want you to tell it. But two, take your time. Be ready. You know, let the grief do its work. And, and when it's not your time, it's God's time. When you're ready, you'll be ready. So that's all. That's all I know about that. Yeah. One question that's come to mind for me, multiple points in this conversation actually, is um, not just the role of the person telling the story, but the people listening. Um, like you said, you know, like when you share, you feel some of that sorrow lifted, some of that sadness lifted. But I have people in my life who, when they share their some of their like darkest, hardest moments, they're left sweating and terrified and they feel worse. I'm not one of those people. I'm, I'm like, I will tell you anything. And that helps me so much. But um, I do, like, I guess I would love to hear your thoughts on one, like, what would you say to people who really do still struggle sharing? And two, like, what role does the audience play in that? Like talking about the peer to peer, talking to Morgan's message ambassadors or someone on a sports team or someone's coming to them and saying like, Hey, this is what I'm dealing with. Like, how can we be better listeners to people who are trying to share their sorrow? That's the, the, listening is a, a dying art. And the first thing I say, if someone thinks they're, they don't want to say it and they don't want to tell it. The first thing I say to them, that's okay. That's okay. When you're ready, you're ready. You know, time is on our side. The one thing I will say to you is don't let this thing bog you down so much that you think about suicide because I need you on this side of the dirt because one day you're going to be a rock star again. 
you may not feel it now, but one day it's going to happen. Just stay with us, please. So um, it's okay. I um, Sometimes when I speak at universities, I'll bring students up on stage. Now we vet them. I don't walk out randomly in the audience. How about you? You know, they're ah, <laughs> get that mic out of here. We vet them. And I usually work with the counseling department. And if, if they, if they feel compelled, they'll, they'll come up and tell about their mental health journey. And it's kind of cool. Um, but one time I was at a school and this young lady looked really nervous. And I, I went up to her. I said, listen, first of all, a mental health talk should not stress us out. We're already stressed already. <laughs> this thing shouldn't. So if you don't want to do it, say the word. And I actually had a, we had a signal, like, you know, rub your nose. If I get to your slide when you're supposed to come up and you go like this, I'll skip over you. No harm, no foul. We're good. Just keep moving on. So the first two young ladies went and then I got to her slide. I look over at her and she's shaking her head like, oh yeah, I'm coming up there. And she did. She rocked it. It was awesome. But she just had to get rid. But if she said, she said, I'm not, I'm not coming up there. I would have said, we're cool. We are so fine. You don't even know it. Um, so your ambassadors have an important role listening, you know, one thing I learned, I worked on the helpline. And one thing I learned about listening is don't try to fix anything. Just listen. And that's really hard. That's really super hard. Is it, you know, my wife comes out to me and says, Hey, I'm having trouble with my boss. I'm like, Oh, we should kick his ass. You know, it's something stupid like that. Like some stupid idea. Right. And I should just stand there and just hug her and be quiet. She's probably over there laughing right now. I'm like, yeah, you never do that. <laughs> I always try to fix it. But that when I worked on the suicide prevention lifeline, when I lived in Chicago, that's what they told us to do. Just listen. Just sit back and listen and let them get it out. The time for solutions will be later. Like now it's time for the purge. Let the purge begin. Yeah, I love that. But that's my number one strategy. And then the other strategy that I use is sometimes like joking around with people and being like, Great. Like, what do you need right now? Do you want me to sit here and listen? Do you, can I go get, get you a pint of ice cream? What flavor do you want? You know, like kind of check in with them be like, are you ready for solutions yet? And a lot of times people say no, and they just want listening. And that's what I go back to. But um, I, when I think of my own mental health journey, I do think of some moments where I was, I needed some solutions. Um, but I think you're so right that the majority of the time, what I wanted was to just talk and be not judged and have someone hear me and understand me and see me. See me. Exactly. Be heard and be seen. Yeah. You know what the cool part about the talk is when I, when I do go on stage and I'm vulnerable, and I, it, it, it took a while to get there. The really cool stuff happens after the talk, like if you're in a large auditorium, auditorium with kids, students, for, you know, I'm going to do one. I'm, coming up to me, 400 people in the room. No one's really going to raise their hand and go, hey, let me tell you my story because there's 400 people there. But afterwards, if I stick around, and this happened at a school down here, Georgia Southern University. I got done at 8 o'clock. And I look up and there's all these students wanting to share their story, which is totally cool. I factor that in. You know, I'm going to stay as long as you want. I got back to my car at 1030. Two and a half hours. And I wasn't going to leave until the last student had their say. And thank God it was a guy because I said, dude, you need to take me to my car because I don't know where I parked and it's dark out now. <laughs> so he goes, all right, I'll tell you my woes, get in my car. And then we drove around and he got me in my car. But it's it's amazing. And you all know this from what you're doing with this podcast. When you're vulnerable, it's amazing how many people will open up. And it's it's really, really cool. 
yeah, I, I think there's a fear in being vulnerable because there can be like judgment attached. And what will this person think of me if I say like, how will this be received? And even if it's one of the most trusted people in your life, you know, you never know. And I think like, I think to myself of like, I would run through worst case scenario. Like what I would ask myself, like, okay, what's the worst that's going to happen? And that like worst thing that probably wasn't even realistic was like earth shattering where I'd be like, you know what? Yeah, no, I'm good. I'm going to pass versus like, what's the best thing that could happen? And I think like in my life, some of the the best things have happened from me being honest and authentic to like how I was feeling or what I was thinking um, versus holding it in. But it is really scary. Like even, even not even just talking about like mental health, but talking about how you're, how you feel about a certain topic or, you know, your beliefs. Like I think we live in a time where things are very polarizing and it, it, Sometimes it's like it's easier to avoid the conversation when, you know, the harder thing can sometimes be the most um, rewarding. Yeah, that's that's my two cents on it. Um, I selfishly, I kind of want to talk about your dad um, and being Irish Catholic and the role that religion I found religion can play in mental health. I was raised in a very Catholic household um, and at times found myself in a little bit of like a friction with God when it came to certain things. And like my parents really tried to instill in me all these different things, but it, it like we didn't really talk about um, like mental health that much when I was growing up and and we didn't talk about my, my grandma had alcohol usage disorder. Like that wasn't really you know, something. And I think part of it, like my mom reflecting now and she listens, shout out Mary. Um, she almost like calls it like this Catholic guilt where like she went to a Catholic elementary school, Catholic high school. And like, you didn't talk about any of these things. And, and I'm just interested to hear like how, you know, growing up, like I don't know your because your religion. You know, you said it's one of your main. Like God is one of those three pillars, and I'm so curious if, with that relationship with God, did that have to change at all for you to feel comfortable talking about mental health and like kind of like your family dynamics role in that? If that makes sense, this is a loaded question. The loaded question. I'm about to take on the Catholic Church. No, no. The, the, I'm going to give my heads up. I went to Catholic school, and I, I now now I attend a non-denominational church. I still I'm a big fan of church as a whole. Wherever you go, you go. Uh, from a mental health aspect, the connection your church should not stress you. You know, it's a place for sick people. It's like you'd be shocked to go. You know. Someone would be shocked if they walked in a hospital and said, what are all these sick people here? You should be able to walk into a church and go, what are all these broken people here? That's what the church is for. It's for broken people. Uh, we're all broken. Sometimes we go to church, we pretend we're not broken. We're all, everything's fine. I got my breast. How's everything? Everything's great. Everything's super. Yeah, right. Not happening. Let me give you the Catholics a plug here. Um, 
they changed their position for years back in the dark ages there. They said suicide was a mortal sin. It's the worst. You're not going to heaven, blah, blah, blah. Both my brothers were buried in a Catholic church, had a ceremony and earned in the cemetery. They had a proper Catholic ceremony. And the Catholic church has come out in a position paper and said, for a sin to be mortal, the person has to be in the right mind. And you all know from the work we do that someone who goes through a mental health crisis is not in the right mind. They're not thinking clearly. It would be like if I, you know, fell down right now during this interview and broke my femur and I was in incredible pain. And you said, Dennis, where's your car keys? I know exactly where they are right now. They're hanging up right in that room over there. But if I broke my femur and I was in pain, like I don't know where my car keys are like because I can't connect it. And I think someone in that mental health crisis can't connect to the reality and they're not making a, a prudent right decision. So they are not in the right mind. So there is a loophole. So kudos to the Catholics for addressing that issue. Um, and the, the Baptists have an unbel unbelievable position paper on mental health. Methodists did too. I looked up the Lutheran one. The Lutherans are way into this mental health thing now. So you just got to find the right place to worship where they take broken people. <laughs> so we're all broken in some way, shape or form. We are all not right. And uh, if I can give Jesus a plug, he hung out with the broken of the broken. You know, he that's that's how he rolled. So uh, the pride factor with my dad, bring him back. Uh, he didn't want to talk about the boys. And then one day I was going to a uh, an army installation and I'm not military, but my dad was. So I called him up. I'm in the car. I'm about to go. It's, it's called uh, Fort Jackson in Columbia, South Carolina. A lot of people go to basic training there. I'm about to go in there. I'm about to address these soldiers and talk about mental health. And that's a tough crowd because, you know, they're testosterone central. It's, you know, we break things. We, you know, we blow up stuff. So I call my dad in the parking lot and I said, dad, um, I'm about to go. I, I didn't tell him. I just said, dad, what, what, what branch of the military, your army, where were your infantry? What war, Korean war? He's giving me, he's giving me, I'm, I'm asking me all this stuff about in case I get asked about my dad, I could tell somebody exactly what he did. And halfway through my quizzing of my father, he goes, Dennis, why are you asking all this? And I said, Dad, because I never knew where he stood with me talking about the boys. Because it's one thing to be the brother. It's a different thing to be the father. It's a, you know, the mother, my mom. She just died like what they went through twice. You know, it's different. I'm a sibling. They, they, were, they, they created these kids. So he, he goes, Dennis, why are you asking me all these questions? I said, Dad, I'm about to go into Fort Jackson and address these soldiers. And I, in case I get asked, I want to know. And there was a silence on the phone. And I'm like, is he is he with me? Or is he, you know, is he against me? Like, is, where does he stand? And all of a sudden he broke the silence. He said, Dennis, go get him. And that's all I needed to hear. I'm like, Pop, I'm on it. And I hung up the phone and I ran in that building. I'm like, I gave him. Everything I had that day, and it was for my dad. And you succeeded in making me cry, so thank you very much. <laughs> I'm crying too. <laughs> my goodness. Oh, that story gets me. Go get him, Dennis. Wow. That's Ooh. when I knew I had dad's, that's when I knew I had his blessing. Like, you know what? Keep doing it. That is so special. So have you talked to him more than that? since that moment or is that really like as far as it's gone in terms of a conversation with him it was it was it was more about what i was doing and my mom and dad had since passed since that conversation and um 
I think he was at ease with what I was doing. He was talking about it. He listened to some of the podcasts I've done in the past. He'd seen some of the videos and uh, he was all in. In fact, they contributed to the foundation, you know, like that's, they wrote a check. So they're in. And then um, when my dad died, my mom gave me my dad's car and said, take your dad's car and do your brother's work. You got me again. You got me again, ladies. <laughs> The dad stories they get me every time, but that was kind of cool. So every time I get, now I drive my dad's car. So when I'm going to a gig or I'm going to do some of the work we're doing, I'm in my dad's car. I know he's with me. break and we'll be back to Dennis in a moment. I'd like to take a second to talk about Morgan's message without whom this podcast would not be possible. Morgan's message strives to eliminate the stigma surrounding mental health within the student athlete community and equalize the treatment of physical and mental health in athletics. We aim to expand the dialogue on mental health by normalizing conversations, empowering those who suffer in silence, and supporting those who feel alone. Morgan's message was founded in July of 2020 to honor Morgan Rogers, who was a beloved sister, daughter, and fiercely loyal friend. If you want to find out more about Morgan's message, if you want to get involved, or you just want to follow along, head to morgansmessage.org or Instagram at Morgan's Message. Let's get back to Dennis. I, yeah, I'm crying. Um, I think we all are. <laughs> I wonder, wish we could do a poll with our audience members of how many people are going to cry in this episode. I think it's going to be over 50%. I'm pretty confident. <laughs> uh, wow. Thank you for sharing such powerful stories with us. I, I really, I appreciate it so much. Now um, my nose is running. <laughs> You think it's funny, but it's not. Okay, I had to break that little joke there in there. A little dad joke yeah. in there just to break the ice. Let's go. Yeah, I, I really appreciate how um you use humor as a tool when talking about all this. I I think you do it very effectively. Um one of my close friends, I was talking to her about how she uses humor as a tool to talk about mental health, and she was like, I used to use humor as a way to keep people out and now I use it as a way to bring people in. Is that kind of how you see it as well or would love for you to elaborate on? I do. That's a, that's a great saying. I'm going to have to steal that one. And I, I noticed when I first started speaking about this, I had to, you know, I was stat central and it was like death by PowerPoint and 48,000. It's like, oh my gosh. And I, I did, I had to do six in a row one time at Shaw Air Force Base, six presentations. Like one started like at O Dark 30, there were like two people there. And then the next one had like 250 people there. And that's how they, the day went, the attendance varied. And somewhere in the middle of like number four or five, 
I was getting bored with my own presentations. <laughs> I'm the speaker. And I went on a rant. I just went off script and went on a rant about something. And I looked up and the audience was laughing. And what happens when people laugh, and it's a dark subject, I'm never flipping towards a disease state or anyone that's suffering. You know, most of it's self-deprecating. It's coming right at Dennis. It's usually about me. And um, trying to be respectful and not flipping. And I, I, I noticed the audience's arms came down. And that's what humor does. It disarms them a little bit. They walk in, they got their arms crossed, mental health. A lot of times when I go to universities or corporations, it's mandatory. You have to go listen to this guy, you know. And the worst crowd on the planet are the guys, fraternity guys. That's mandatory. I was standing, this is a funny story. I'm going to curse. You can bleep this out. But I'm standing at University of Kentucky and I'm doing an IFC event, interfraternity council. I love talking to guys. Don't get me wrong, but they don't want to hear it. And it's my favorite audience. I'm holding the door as these guys are walking in and I have the lapel microphone on, but the guy doesn't see it. I'm going outside to get my breath, you know, right before I start, I go outside, get my bearings. And then I come in and this guy walks right by me, not knowing I'm the speaker. And he goes, I can't wait till this shit's over with. <laughs> and I just started laughing. Like that's the guy I need. That's the person, the person who doesn't think they need to hear it needs to hear it. So a younger Dennis Gillen would have been offended. But the older Dennis Gillen said, you know, right, I'm talking to that guy tonight. That that guy's in my crosshairs. That's the target. The guy, the person who doesn't think they need to talk about this stuff. And this is male or female. They don't think they need it. But guess what? We all need to talk about this stuff. Mm -hmm. Are there any strategies that you've found to help uh, get through to men in particular? Uh, the mandatory always works. <laughs> that's a good one no it, the humor part helps the humor part helps i had a guy come up to me recently after i spoke it was a construction meeting and that the construction industry has a high percentage of suicides because the demographics high you know use of alcohol high ownership of firearms they work hard they play hard they're on the road a lot um just a lot of stressors and it's a lot of dudes so i had a guy come up to me afterwards and we're standing in line and he says, hey, I really appreciated your talk. And it was I think it was the humor piece. I don't think people expect to laugh a little bit in a suicide pre presentation. And some schools I go to, I'll hire a, a student to be a DJ. So the people walk in the room and there's a DJ playing like, is this the suicide prevention talk? I'm like, yes, it is. Sit down. Because I have ADHD and I know what I don't like. You know, death by PowerPoint. I don't like that. Uh so this guy came up to me and said, hey, I really appreciate that talk. And I, you know, I always deflected. I, I don't want to say, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm awesome, right? No, I just say, you know, I'm only as good as my audience. And you guys were awesome. You were a great audience. And I said, if one person hears me, then our work here is done. You know, it was all worth it. And he looks me straight in the eye. He goes, you got your one. And I was like, oh, I said, dude, don't make me cry in the lunch line. Don't you dare do it because I'm teetering right now. And I'm just trying to get a little pasta and get on the road. But it, he got me. <laughs> oh. Wow. That's really he cool. got me good. Yeah. And that's the podcast. Think about the goal of what we're doing here in the mental matchup is if one person gets one pearl, man, our work is here tonight is complete. Agreed. That's what we always say. <laughs> yeah, 100%. I always kind of frame it as like, someone else's Morgan like if we can just help that one per person then it's all all worth it 
Um, so and similar. Morgan played my. Just say Morgan played my favorite sport ever, lacrosse. I grew up playing that sport. That was awesome. I love it. Um, I I want to talk a little bit about your TED talk um, on on loneliness um, that you did. I Skylar has probably watched it more recently than me, but I. I think we'd be doing a disservice to the audience if we didn't give, you know, some kind of high level, what kind of inspired you to do a TED talk, like why loneliness and any kind of tidbits you learned from giving that talk. Well, that was a great experience doing the TEDx talk. And I did it. I live in Greenville, South Carolina, and I did that talk in Hickory, North Carolina. And the rationale behind that was, if I go up there three hours away and I bomb, I can come home and nobody knows about it. <laughs> so I went up to Hickory. I applied. I had a friend who uh, prompted me to apply. It was awesome that she said, do this. And I sent in my tape and they accepted it. If you watch, and I'm, I, I did a critique on my YouTube channel. I broke down my own TEDx talk. I said, because I want other people to do it. I broke it down. But when I come on stage, right when I come on stage, and you see me breathe in and breathe out, I truly don't think I'm ready. Even though I practiced, even though I got up early in the morning, even though I'm a Toastmaster, I did all the right things. I stood up there and went, I don't think, because it's memorized. That's the thing they don't tell you. There's two screens in front of you. One had a couple slides. And I only used like four or five, if you notice in the TED Talk. I didn't want to do, again, the death by PowerPoint thing. I wanted it to be a talk. And then the other one was a clock. And they told you, you had 15 to 17 minutes to do, you know, your time slot. So that's all I had. So it, it, it was a great experience. The reason I, I took that topic, by the way, the loneliness, because it was affecting me personally. At the time, I didn't want to do my regular keynote, my talk about my brothers and do that whole thing. I wanted to do something totally different. And this loneliness thing was impacting me personally. I'd been going through a divorce. And I moved from a big old house in Blythewood, South Carolina, to a tiny, tiny apartment in Greenville, South Carolina. This apartment was so small that if I put the key in the door too far, I broke the back window. I mean, it was tiny. That's how tiny it was. Now, and the walls were closing in on me. So I started, I literally was at home one night. This is kind of funny. And I talked about the TEDx talk. I'm at home one night on my couch by myself, having a little pity party. And I'm watching a documentary called Dying Alone. I'm like, oh my gosh, that could be me, you know, and I, I don't want that to be me. And then, and, and then, you know, the TEDx talk at the end, I said, I really don't want to live alone is what I really don't want. I don't care if I die alone. I don't want to live alone. Um, so that's where I drew my inspiration. And then through the coaching of the TEDx people, they're awesome. Gosh, the, the people at Hickory were phenomenal. You, you go up there the Friday before this, like behind the scenes, you go up Friday before and you practice, you have a practice session. They tell you where to stand, you're on the stage, and then Saturday you go live. And I drew a great slot. I didn't want to be there all day. There's nine of them. I drew number three, which means I get to go in and watch the first person go. When the second person's speaking, I go out of the auditorium and I get in this little area where you stand. So I get to sort of see hers, but I saw one, two, and then I get to go. So I wasn't sitting there all day. There were people that went after lunch, and I did not envy them. Like, no. The, I ate lunch. I was done. I'm like, 
we can leave any minute now. I'm good. Um, but I, I, I seriously, if anyone wants to talk to me about the TEDx talk, or wants any, uh, you know, coaching, let me know. I'll, 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 I'll help them out. There's someone listening to this saying, you know what? There's a story in me. I would love to help you develop it because I think everybody has their 16 minutes and 52 seconds on stage like I had. But it, I, I, I check out the YouTube video where I break it down. We're our toughest critics. I, I crush myself. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I screwed up there. Ah, I screwed up there. And everyone said, no, it was awesome. Like, uh, in my head, it was different than when it came out. But in the end, it was it was well done, I think, because it goes to the practice aspect. Like, and you're all athletes, you know, you have practice, practice, practice. And um, it even work in any skill. The funny part is, watch at the very end, I take off. I'm off that stage so quick. I should have stuck around because my, my fiance, who's now my wife, was in the audience saying, Dennis, people stood up. Like they were giving you a standard ovation. I was having no part of it. I bolted. So I was like, I'm done. So the last shot is basically my ass headed towards the door. <laughs> See public public speaking is extremely challenging. I envy I envy those who are naturals at it. I took a, a class in grad school and it wasn't until I had like a one-on-one with a professor because I was really struggling when she was like you know what you need to remember is that no one else knows what you're going to say. Like no one else has any idea what you have planned. Like you could skip over a point, you can come back to it or you could totally leave it out. Like she was like, no one else has the script other than you. No one is going to be critiquing you the way you are. Like she was like, take a deep breath, talk, talk normally as if you're having a conversation. And she was like, and remember at the end of the day, like, it's not that serious. Like, you know, and the, the whole, like, no one else knows what you're going to be saying has stuck with me. I mean, I still am not amazing at public speaking, but like, that's always a great point to anchor to of like, I can mess up and like, I know I messed up, but no one else knows I messed up. Um, and I think like as athletes, that's, what's like sometimes hard is, um, you know, when you're in a play, like you can kind of see yourself mess up, but if it's like you're talking, no one really knows. Um, anyway, off of that tangent, thank you for diving into the TEDx talk. I find that very interesting. Um, we are just about coming up on time, which I wish wasn't the case because this has been one of our most, I mean, one of the most amazing interviews I've been in i mean we've laughed we've cried a little bit sky and i are both like wiping our tears um i think you got me three times uh laughed way more than that and so like to close it out we love to do closing questions and so i'll kick us off with our first one which is if you could go back to like when you were struggling most with you know your brother's passings what piece of advice would you give younger Dennis knowing what you know now? Oh, that's, that's a great question. Um, in the midst of my sorrow, I, I go back to the first one with Mark. I would say, dude, put down the bottle, put down the, you know, the drugs and alcohol, lace up the sneakers and go for a run. Exercise is a great, you know, equalizer you get to process some of your stuff while you're out there doing whatever you're doing exercise whatever you do i play tennis now just get out there and hit something just do something to get out of your head uh go hiking 
do something. I would that would be the advice I'd give my younger self. So put down the booze and the, all the other stuff. Put down the phone. Put down any distractions and go take care of you, and do it in a way that's positive. You know, the drinking was a negative coping skill. I think if I went for a hike or I went for a run, it would have been a positive coping skill. But at the time, I didn't see those as such. I was just trying to cope. Period. Um, and then the last question that we end with is, uh, what is one thing you're grateful for? You're going to make me cry again. That <laughs> question. All right. So I told you all earlier that I got hammered the night before Matthew died, you know, and, um, made that deal with God. And I've, since then I've had two sons, you know, Martin and Brendan. And those two boys have never seen daddy drunk. And I'm really grateful for that because I was a happy drunk. There were sometimes, you know, I could be an a-hole. I don't need alcohol to be an a-hole. I could do that all by myself. But the fact that those two guys who mean the world to me, you know, my legacy, my boys, um, haven't seen daddy inebriated. I'm, I'm forever grateful for that, for that, that decision I made that day. That those two guys, they, they always want to hear my drinking stories and I won't tell them, but my buddies will, well, um, you know, dad, I'm not going to tell you that story. So um, that is, for me, that's a source of pride that they, they didn't see, they didn't see that side of Dennis. I, I love that you pinpointed like an exact like moment and have pulled it into like your past present and future um yeah because I I mean even listening like that was such a monumental moment for you and yeah wow I I am so words can't even describe I think how grateful I am that you you know chose to come on the mental matchup be a guest and really share so many vulnerable parts in your life and your wins, your losses with, you know, two people that you barely know. Um, so thank you so much for, for being willing to come on. This has been absolutely incredible. Uh, thank you for having me on it. You know, I, I may be one of your older guests. <laughs> you have a lot of young athletes on your podcast and I'll, I'll give a plug for getting older. This is a plug for getting on. This is why you should choose to live and not die by suicide. Earlier on, we were talking about some of the pressures we have in life, and you, you always worry about what other people think. As you get older, you don't care what people think. It's awesome. It's, I will fart in their general direction. I don't care. I really don't care what you think. It's awesome. It's liberating. But that wasn't always the case. When I was in college and all these peer groups, I was worried about where I fit in. As you get older, that really wanes. You don't care. I. You should see how I leave this house dressed. Sometimes my wife is mortified, but I don't care. <laughs> so there's my plug for staying with us because it does get better. It the judgmentalness, all that stuff goes bye bye. You don't judge. You don't care, and you don't care if you get judged. You just you're, you're just trying to get through this life without looking stupid. And some days I do it really good. Some days not so good. <laughs> but I don't care, and it's not apathy. It's just I gotta I gotta do Dennis. And you all do you, and I'm just going to go about my way and hopefully spread some hope like we're doing on this podcast.
thank you so much to Dennis for coming on the mental matchup and getting really vulnerable with Skylar and I today. Um, I, I've, I've so much admiration for Dennis and kind of what he has experienced in his life, but also how he's taken something that can really impact you in a negative way and, and turned it into something bigger than himself through the Half a Sorrow Foundation. I think it's absolutely incredible. Um, definitely check out his TEDx talk and go check out his book, Nice Shoes. A little compliment can go a long way. I I felt very uplifted after our conversation and I'm hoping that anyone listening, you were able to find maybe a, a piece here, a bit there that you either related to or you learned something and you walked away feeling feeling better than you than you came. I think I think with tragedy, a lot of times it can be hard to see see the good and and that's what I really loved about this talk with Dennis was that the highlighting of the good and and what he's doing now and you know, how we're stronger together as a whole. So another huge thank you to Dennis. If you want to come on the mental matchup, share your story, whether it's on our podcast, on our stories platform, head to morgansmessage.org and you can find us there or send an email to submission at morgansmessage.org. Last but not least, thank you to Morgan's Message again for presenting this podcast we would not be here without them. If you want to get involved with Morgan's Message, you can head to morgansmessage.org. If you want to follow along on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, we are at Morgan's Message. With that, this concludes season five of The Mental Matchup, and we will see you for season six soon. Thanks for listening.